Today with me, Vika Kashenbawa. Hi, Vika. Hi. Vika, you're an artist, filmmaker, writer, and music producer based in Berlin. Your videos, installations, performances, and films negotiate the norms and patterns of representation that are inscribed in regimes of gaze, power, and visibility while being based on your own biography. Your work has been widely exhibited, namely at the Tainan Art Museum in Taiwan, the Whitechapel Gallery in London. You recently received the EMAF Award alongside, in the past, the German Short Film Award, the German Film Critics Award, and the best contribution to German competition at the International Short Film Festival Oberhausen, and you are a resident at Villa Aurora in Los Angeles in 2018. Feelings That Move Nowhere, curated by Eva Birkenstock, is currently on display at the Kunstverein Dusseldorf. The exhibition presents selected works from the last 10 years of your practice, along three new productions, which I would love to talk about today. Social realities first enter the human body through emotions, and sometimes settle. How can shame be communicated when all it demands is to hide. I feel an urgency to address issues of work and class. But the absurdity is that once one achieves a significant platform as an artist, one can only reflect on a past one no longer occupies. Though that past may still occupy oneself, what if it was possible to speak and be heard without the prerequisite of social assent? One of your recent works, The Capacity for Adequate Anger 2021, which is an essayistic single-channel video created for your first extensive solo show at the Kunstverein Dusseldorf. In the video, you return to the village where you grew up after an absence of over 10 years to make this work. And I was really struck by how you started the video by recounting a conversation with your grandmother in which she tries to understand what your job entails. This conversation for me conveyed a sense of disconnect between the many facets of your subject. How has it been affected by the economies of art production and dissemination that is so intertwined with your personal experience and, and your role as an artist. I think your question about the kind of the economic entanglements um, are really important. And I think they go back one work because I think Untitled Sequence of Gaps, which is the work I did a year prior, um, speaks more directly to that because the work you now outlined was not funded by the institution. Mm -hmm. So I had a small other kind of money source, like not much money. And I went there to do it and it was not initially planned that it would be for this show. It just kind of like became that. Um, but there was a work I did the year before, Untitled Sequence of Gaps, that was more directly shaped by kind of the uh, uh, economic surroundings of production. And so that was a moment when I was just, I didn't have much money, so I had to like come up with a project and there was like a small grant for like queer moving image that I felt I had to apply to because I couldn't afford not to. And so I applied and kind of quickly wrote up a project based on like a witch burning ritual 
that happens in that village where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And there's like a like an annual event around solstice where children set um, fire to like a bonfire and then there's like a really like kind of realistically crafted straw wedge that slides into that bonfire in a set of flame. And so I thought, well, great, I'm going to do work about this. And I got the grant, but I hadn't properly researched because they stopped the witch part of the kind of solstice fire three or four years uh, before. So in a way, like I had gotten that money and needed to make work. But since they stopped burning the, the straw wedge, I also, there's no point in going back. So I was kind of glad that I didn't have to go back in the end for that work. And I could kind of like use sourced footage and like find like a different entryway to the work. And it was kind of like good. At least this way I don't have to go back. Um, but the idea of like potentially going back, which I never thought I would, stayed with me. And then I kind of questioned that more. And also like for the occasion kind of of that big institutional solo exhibition when like it's, it's like this huge building and there's like a banner with my name printed on it. So this huge like hanging outside of the institution that feels profoundly strange to me. And kind of I went to that institution for the first time in the same week that I went back to where I grew up to um, take photos for that work that I then made for the exhibition. And yeah, and then I kind of like, it became a work about distance, distance in class and like going back. And and I remember that conversation with my grandmother who I was not particularly close with, um, but I remember uh, her calling and um, which we rarely t- talked on the phone, but I remember uh, we did at that particular time. And I, I was already in Berlin and she was trying to understand what I did. and. And it became really clear that um, um, nobody in my family could really understand or imagine what work outside of someone telling you what to do is. It's like no one in my family like finished high school or even went to high school um, or studied for that matter. Like it's um, like the idea of work is quite different from um kind of freelance work or like autonomous work within uh, the limitations that autonomy brings within an economy that we live in but uh, the idea that i could decide myself what i did within my possibilities was so unimaginable to her that i had to like try to take like different entryways and routes to like explain to her that I didn't work for somebody or that I didn't work for television or that I was not doing something so I could one day then um, get a job or something that... And so I think that kind of... um, Yeah, it showed that distance, but it also showed me kind of like having created that distance also and kind of then referencing a museum where my work would rather be shown than on television also like kind of like kind of rubbing it in her face a little bit because i knew she had no idea what a museum was either 
but also kind of keeping her at distance with that kind of attitude. And those are like the forms of distance in class between kind of achieved distance perhaps or distance that comes with moving into a different field and with leaving, but also the, the personal disconnect from where one kind of spent a significant portion of one's life. Of one's life. As a viewer looking at the work, I felt like I'm being placed within this distance. What does this work do today and where is it going to lead you next? I have no idea. I think like it's still, I kind of like I mentioned that in the work itself, but it also really causes me a lot of embarrassment. So it's like, um, it is strange to work with something that is like a bit uncomfortable, but at the same time, I think shame for instance kind of is such an important part of like growing up queer or growing up um, working class this and like to counteract that shame that is so deeply instilled and like kind of not do what it's asking us to do which is like to hide but to actually show something that we might be embarrassed of and yeah kind of counter intuitively respond to that sense of shame and what that does is like it's, it's, it's not like a great feeling I don't enjoy watching that work myself or like I'm like like now it's, it's going to show um, at film festivals as well it's going to show a TIFF for in Toronto for, mm -hmm. for instance and so it's like that just like kind of increases the embarrassment even further and yeah so i don't know where it leads me because it's also weird that like the work that kind of feels most uncomfortable to me in a sense is then also like the in many cases like the most popular and that kind of like describes like a, a process i've been through because in the late 2000 decade I, I made like essay films that are really personal and they became really popular and like within that kind of festival world and in 2012 like um, I did another of those films and that probably became like my um, one of my most successful works in that festival circuit and uh, to this day but it became so popular and I kind of like then started to question why people are so interested in looking at something that far away from them, for them, from their own experience, from their own positionality in society and like how they experience life, like from which uh, like identities they inhabit. And, um, and then I became more interested in that experiential situation, like uh, kind of a mainstream audience kind of accessing themselves through looking at the other or through experiencing the presence of something they can kind of like slip into or like a, a skin they can crawl into without the risk of getting stuck in it. So they can like kind of crawl in in an exhibition space or in a cinema space for like 15, 20 minutes, but then also safely leave that. Mm -hmm. And they do that from a really like safe position. So yeah, in a sense, I've been through that before and then started making work about those dynamics and about the ways that marginalized bodies are displayed within contemporary art institutions. And then kind of came back to like 
making that more kind of poetic, personal, calm and quiet work about two years ago. And yeah, now I'm kind of like feeling a similar conflict again that I had already I kind of negotiated for uh, quite some years as well. There's an expectation from the world of me as, as an artist, uh, whether as a sense of belonging to a class or what kind of work I do and how smart I should be and how I should behave and all of this. And I started to realize that the shame that I'm carrying is not just mine. It is subjected upon me. And the more I confront the shame, whether it's in therapy or in my own work, I feel like the more I'm deconstructing it, or at least it's it's shrinking a little bit. Do you feel the same? I think in relation to shame, you're absolutely right. Like shame is relational. It always reflects kind of uh, social realities. And I would even go like one step further than you. I think you're absolutely right in saying that it is like an external gaze that causes a shame. But I think on top of that, it's also like the way we learned to imagine a gaze, like that gaze doesn't have to be there. Like no one needs to look at you kind of condescendingly or in whatever way that puts you to shame or disapprovingly or in any kind of way that doesn't even have to be there. It's enough that kind of you imagine an outside gaze, like a suspected outside gaze for you to feel shame. And I think that's kind of like that uh, has a lot to do with displaying oneself, displaying art. And it's not necessarily the case that something is in reality met with, but it's enough that it's possible or likely or expected. So it's it, it's also like an internalized gaze of the other that mm-hmm. causes that shame, which I think is interesting because it's like a... It's something that is learned from uh, um, being in society of living like in different ways and like experiencing and how they enter the body. But it is also like a, it is a, it's relational in the sense that it involves other eyes or judgments, but it's also like kind of intra-relational in the sense that it's um, kind of an internalized dialogue and an internalized way of looking at oneself that can be worse than how anyone else would in fact look upon you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like um, what I'm quite interested in because I think a lot of the things we encounter in society and and I think a lot of the difficult and discriminatory things we've uh, experienced, I think whatever can happen, we're always capable of doing it to ourselves worse. Like whatever I'm afraid you might say to me, I can do worse to myself. So, and I think that's kind of like what I'm interested in. It's like not only what the other does to one, but like how how much worse I can do it to myself without needing the other. And I think like shame and like that kind of suspected gaze or like that imagined judgment. I think that's what I'm interested in also. Totally. And whatever projected gaze we have or the shame that's being imposed upon us, I mean, there's remains of that stays within us. And coming from this point, you know, there's the artist human who goes through that. Um, We're also queer bodies living in politically volatile times and uh, pandemics and, and so on. 
but we're also artists who have to contribute to a, a cultural scene. Uh, we have to be present ourselves a certain way. We have to constantly push ourselves forward. And I feel between the artist as a job or as a career and, and then this human, there's always a negotiation. But what I love about your work is that there is a distance between the artist figure and the artist person. It is similar to that distance that we were talking about, the distance between you here and the village, grandma and father and now. And that distance also exists in your, in your work and the research that you've done on the idea of gazing and being gazed upon. Yeah, and I think then it's also like always interesting to me or I always make that part of the work is what becomes material, what becomes resource. Um, because um, that's also strange kind of having moved out from someone, something like having greater distance, but then also making that material and also like uh, like kind of a subject to one's own work and almost like it becoming a resource. And I think especially like the, the personal is um, not necessarily a very sustainable resource either, like to kind of depend on that, to depend upon that as an artist and one's practice can be really exhausting as well, or kind of like um, stand in the way of like, feeling good and flourishing in a way because there's an attachment or like one's um, practice depends on confronting kind of unresolved things. You claim Marie Antoinette to having been an artist. How much of us as artist figures are Marie Antoinette's? Is this, is this what we want to achieve or is this what we're trying to run away from? Or is this something that we just simply have to deal with and negotiate at all times? Yeah, that, that's yeah one of the questions that I think the work poses. Like it, rather than saying Marie Antoinette was an artist, like I'm insulting artists by calling them Marie Antoinette. Um, and I think it's kind of like in the video work, like it, it is about that castle that Marie Antoinette had built. And she also had like a hamlet built that was populated by peasants that kind of performed work like milking and like having small gardens and but it was like for her to look at some simple and the simple life basically <clears throat> and so the question i have is like from people who kind of um leave their working class surroundings and become artists like and create some distance is it like are we the peasants that perform for Marie Antoinette to look at, like as the institution, or in kind of making personal work, have we become Marie Antoinette and looking from a privileged position at the simplicity of like rural life or like working class life. And I think it's, it's about these like two extremes, like where kind of like kind of shifting positionalities almost like in a way of course, like Marie Antoinette is a really extreme example of like a privileged position from where to look from um, and to look at something that is unrelated to her uh, and kind of engaging with politics only in, a, in the aesthetic realm rather than in the kind of the political field itself. So, um, yeah, but it, but it is kind of like too extremes and i'm just wondering like what is that 
relative distance to unaffectedness from class violence if one is sufficiently successful? Like what does uh, upward mobility mean and what kind of um, forms of violence we become implicated in kind of taking part in that or like in that journey, like being part of like high art I see in itself like a, as, as a way of like class violence because taste is political and like kind of elevating certain aesthetic forms over others is um, telling working class people or people in the poverty class and unemployed people what kind of culture is not worthy of preservation for instance so i think in that we become implicated in, in forms of violence and in that we become distant to kind of physical effectiveness because politics to a lot of people means being negatively and intimately affected by political decisions of like of dying younger of like um, being unhealthy all of that and I think the more successful one is as an artist of course there's like gender-based violence and racialized violence and that doesn't go away but like the ability to circumvent some of its most harshest effects become easier um, yes yeah, so I'm wondering kind of like is, is one displayed and or at the same time kind of a privileged figure mm -hmm. and and it's more like this like the peasants that populated the village and got paid for like performing themselves as peasants and Maria Antoinette having the joy of looking at them and kind of like learning and, and um, growing from looking at the simple life it's like also like again like an intrapersonal relation and one kind of fluctuates between both aspects. What if the peasant becomes Marie Antoinette or takes on the role of Marie Antoinette or her stature or her class or her privilege and so on? Which I think at some point in our practices, this is not avoidable, right? Like, um, because we're, we're still situated in an art market. Um, at the end of the day, uh, we're still a, a brand that has capitalist values attached to it um how do you what do you think of all of this <laughs> how do you negotiate it personally i i totally agree with you and i think that's like a big source of the alienation i feel within the field of contemporary art and it's precisely because of that that i want to um i think it's important to rediscuss the idea of um kind of social ascension in that sense because it then the end goal is kind of moving up in hierarchy and I think just the possibility like when I think there's been a change like in in the last few decades that um, the left moved away from fighting for equality for like less big differences in the living conditions of people to um, uh, the avoidance of like poverty for example and those are different things mm -hmm. like um, 
like fighting inequality is something else to like making sure that people have the bare minimum. Those are like different goals. And if kind of social ascent is like the the possibility that is provided just enough, it just means that still the majority of people will not see the benefits of that potential. And just because some people might um, benefit from upward mobility, it still means that the majority of people will not, but they will um, create like hope based on potential that they could. And I think just measuring um, uh, kind of social equality based on the potential of ascent of some is a bad practice. And I think um, it is yeah, I think it's important to like uh, think class differently again, not in the sense of how many working class people can study in the end, because I don't, I don't think that's the only criterion. Like it's it's important um, that people, whatever, wherever they come from, can access the education they desire, but. It's, it's in society we still need a lot of different kinds of labor and seeing the dignity in all kinds of labor and valuing um, the many things that need to be done monetarily but also in and um, the way they are judged and like regarded i think that is really important so it's not about who can study, who can become an artist, who can have their name outside an institution, but it's also like learning a craft is, is not a bad thing. It's not like a, a personal failure of like not having moved up enough. Like it's something that we need as much as we need janitors and people taking care of elderly people. Like so many things are needed and kind of judging things by the potential of uh, social ascension like is in itself devaluing a lot of the labor that people provide as artists we we talk about this idea of success in the eyes of so many people i'm successful in the eyes of my parents i'm so not successful because just like your grandmother they don't understand what i'm doing um, because success is also measured by a sense of financial stability and investment. It's very capitalist. Mm -hmm. Like, what is the limit of saying, okay, I've, I'm here, I've attained what I want, and how much of the art world keeps feeding me the sense of desire of wanting more? But what is the limit? This is, this is one question I want to, and I want to pose to you. Um, but also, at the same time, I'll go back to this uh, idea of class the more I want to attain success, I'm going up the ladder and I'm potentially I'm on the periphery of classes. And, and that's something that I feel uncomfortable with coming from a working class underprivileged and all of this. And so my perception of privilege has specific associations that I have to deal with personally. But how do we, how do you negotiate all of this? And 
and it is it is it is present in your work and in, in subtle ways you don't necessarily tackle it like it's it, but it's there i don't want success at any price and i'm not doing much actively for things to work which i think is also part of the reason why some things took longer i never studied art for example like but i don't I don't like hang out with people because I can benefit from them. I don't go to openings or any kind of um, social gathering that might further my career. Like I do very little of all of that. And um, so I'm trying to see if it, if I can live like a relatively happy life and have my practice kind of on my own terms as much as possible without being entangled in the art market, without attending strange dinners that I really don't want to attend. Like, of course, I'm interested in my work, like finding a platform, and, I, and I'm really grateful if that happens. And if, if it resonates with people, of course, like I'm not immune to success because also um, to a certain extent it's necessary in order to keep on practicing. But... At the core of this, or like as a foundation to this, it's always very clear to me that I don't have to do this if it feels bad. Like I'm, I can also take any kind of job, like I can work. And if kind of being an artist and kind of making my living as an artist came at a price that I felt was too alienating or like demanded um, yeah, compromises for me that I'm not willing to do. I would rather stop making art and like take a different job and or then still do art but like on different terms and, and not be within like the institutionalized art system if it became expected of me to hang out and spend time with people who I don't honestly enjoy spending time with and so far i've been really lucky that uh, i work with people because out of like mutual respect and there are nice good and politically aware and committed people in the art world and those are the people i'm i'm happy to work with and i'm and it's a joy to work with them but it just also means that i do say no to things when i don't think they feel right or that i that i'm politically unsure or apprehensive about. You ended up working on the show during the pandemic. And how was it doing this from a distance uh, <laughs> over Zoom um, and creating new work um, under these restrictions as well? Um, it was definitely challenging because I think in, under like different circumstances, I've, it would have been easier to meet in person and make time for that. And I think with... Um, institutions kind of maneuvering around constantly changing regulations I think consumed a lot of time and I think I would have probably spent more time at the space had it not been a pandemic uh, if people were not working remotely as much as they could and um, reasonably so in another way like I'm really grateful for the liberty I was given and producing something and working with space and and also working with materials or like in disciplines that I hadn't worked in um, prior 
to this show. And yeah, I'm just really grateful for the trust. And But of course, it was a lot to prepare, like nine video works, or like also one 3D installation, all the technical aspects um, without being there and like um, preparing everything as much as possible or like designing a 200 square meter carpet that is made out of like hundreds of pieces to the millimeter. But then I was also grateful to work with three carpenters who were able to like um, lay that carpet for me because if I had done it, it would not like look the way it, it does look now. But um, kind of not being there and like working with measurements that were like meticulously measured f for me by the people at the Kunstverein, but still hoping that what I designed, like it had to be correct to the millimeter was in fact working. <laughs> um, I also saw it being laid because like it's also like part of the capacity for adequate anger. The last video work was part of the installation of the show and like how much labor is invisibilized behind the figure of the artist. Like if kind of the more need and like the better a show looks, the less we see the labor that went into it from many people, like the, the entire install team external companies, like so many people, and I was there to like document that and accompany it also. And so when people started working and I was like quickly confident that um, they were so good at their jobs, mm. that did like amazing work. And what happens to the documentation? Is it something that you, um, like you'll make new work out of, or is it something that you uh, share online? Um... Well, it became part of the video work that is exhibited there is kind of like going into that and like showing some of the labor that went into it and kind of kind of countering what usually happens that that labor becomes invisible because it should look effortless. So I'm trying to like in the video work then show the effort that went into the work by many people in offices as much as um, like um, applying translucent film to like a window front. You talk about trauma-related memory loss via these reflections of light outside the visible spectrum and this other reality, in a sense, um, that we feel but we've, we've never seen. This idea of the somatic, the physical, how sometimes our bodies feel something. We don't know where it's coming. Remember something. We don't know where it's coming from. I basically started making that work um, by kind of fusing two projects I had like vaguely in mind. One was like the witch burning ritual bonfire situation and the other was um, that I had been thinking about uh, memory loss and like not remembering my own childhood and being an artist who works with moving image a lot. And so that kind of led me to think about violence and images and maybe in a different way because there has been like discourse spanning over decades on like the violence of the image of the violence of portraying of showing of gazing and what i thought was like missing from that or at least not sufficiently present was the understanding that violence is not necessarily visible that we cannot see it from all perspectives, that what 
kind of violence directed at you you might see and feel but like from where i stand i might not be able to witness it so there might not be like a an image to it that serves as evidence for all perspectives so that kind of led me to think like how do i deal with not remembering not having access to images but working in a media medium that is based on images and sounds and how can i kind of negotiate that process of like yeah the inv often invisible nature of trauma while working in a medium that tries to like make things visible to kind of like shift things within the visible realm while a lot of perception happens outside that which is accessible to us seeing humans through vision and yeah i think that kind of became the form of like a kind of bringing together this autobiographical layer with then like the more like scientific layer of physics and how light and radiation electromagnetic radiation works within and without the visible spectrum and yeah thinking about forms of violence outside the visible and how we can negotiate them within moving images you talk about you know this memory erasure or loss um, by referring to a childhood is just a fantasy for adults <laughs> Do you feel like in the process of working or making this work specifically, has there been a way of trying to restore some of the loss or some of that erasure or like replace it rather by creating new material? Memory loss, in, in, in my instance, um, it kind of helped me kind of center the gap which is also then what the title refers to, Untitled Sequence of Gaps, that rather than kind of focusing on the image and finding and trying to dig and trying to find something that might just not be able to be found, to kind of live with a gap and accept the gap not as a lack of... to experience not as absence, but as a form of, um, of presence that is different. And that, um, yeah, yeah, I can respond with like a, with an anecdote. I think that um, might make sense. So basically, I wanted, I didn't want to, but I applied with a project to go back to that village where I grew up to shoot that weird um, witch burning ritual that they do. They stopped doing that. I felt okay. I don't have to go. And I tried to look at um, at different sites in Europe where they have like similar rituals. So I, there's like part of the Czech Republic where that happens, but then I saw the images, they were not close enough. Like I was not happy with the way they stacked the wood, like the, the witches didn't look the way I wanted them to look. <clears throat> then I found like somewhere in Denmark, they didn't have the metal rope that the witch slides down upon, but like the bonfire looked fine, the witch itself looked good. So I called them and like wrote them emails like, look, is this happening? And they're like, yeah, of course. It's a tradition. We've been doing this for hundreds of years. Of course, a witch shall burn. And I was like, great, good. So I'm going to use that money and like go with uh, the support of friends uh, and like a small camera crew. And we'll take a trip to Denmark. If they say this is going to happen, I think 
This looks good. We're gonna shoot it. Fine. So we go there like eight hours before um, the ritual. Um, people like stacking up the wood, and we're like, "Yeah, is this gonna happen?" They're like, "Yeah, of course, of course." Like um, we've been doing this for hundreds of years. Of course, like why not? So we go back later, we have like dinner, and um, it's also solstice, and the witch would not burn before like 10. We go back, and then on the day it was decided that um, they will stop burning the witch, and um, the people like on site were unhappy about that, and the workers like um, building the bonfire, and the bonfire still happened, but it was decided on the day that let's abolish the witch. But on that small island, there were like a lot of different places where that still happened. This then, I thought, kind of as an artist, I, I need to find that image. Where else can we go? We got a map of like different witch burning rituals. And there was like a bit of stress, but I kind of kept my calm and gladly we didn't go to the far right wing parties witch burning, which I think like as a group of queers could have been dangerous. And we went some, somewhere else, but it was like a kindergarten or elementary school that kind of built their own witch and set it aflame and we shot that with two cameras but I was, I was like this is useless because I was unhappy with like the way these children crafted um, their witch which I thought uh, looked too gender ambiguous which coming for me is a strange <laughs> strange evaluation of like a, a witch built by children and then I didn't use any of the material because it didn't look the way I wanted it to look. And in a sense, that became an allegory for the whole process. That was like traveling to different places, trying to find that image. Um, but I had to come to terms with that it cannot be found. Then I, that I have to live with not finding that image, with maybe not finding the evidence, the cause the exact circumstances of something that I cannot cognitively access, although I can feel it. But in a way, do you think by by going through the whole process and wanting to re-encounter the image all over again and retrace it, even if it's in a different um, environment, do you feel by doing that you've abolished it? Is it in a different space? Is it more consciously in your perception now? I think it, like it didn't bring anything back, so to speak, but it changed my relationship to it and in the sense that I am not chasing the image any longer in that sense. And like both as a person and an artist, I think. Um, so that helped, but it also helps kind of working with kind of unresolved questions of any sort or trauma as material, it helps change our own relationships to it. So it's less, like trauma can often feel like something that is stable, that is an object that can or at least threatens to dominate us. And I think by working with it, what does change that it becomes malleable, that it becomes that it can be shaped, that it can be put in different forms. It doesn't make it go away, but it changes the agency we might experience over it. And just understanding that things can be there, but they can also be worked with 
and their shape can be altered. And as much as we try to translate them into like the visible realm or into language or images, that there are limitations. And also like it's a form of reduction doing that that needs to be acknowledged. And that um, them exists or like trauma existing within the invisible doesn't mean that it's not there, but it also means that it's not unreachable in a sense. Like, yeah, and I think that what the work then became to be about in the end. There's a sense of peacefulness that is created at the end or more, it's this transition between spaces symbolized by these images. I think it's really beautiful and I can relate to you completely, especially in the, in the works that I'm developing right now. But I'm constantly asking myself, you know, this is again, the self-sabotaging artist voice that always being gazed upon, but also like self-critical and judgmental. There's always that question of how much, how do we create work that is personal or has an autobiographical element to it that remains accessible and open? I think that's kind of what the work is, because um, just for the sake of the personal itself, there would be no point in making the work. Um, but it is about posing questions in the public sphere, in, in a sense, and kind of connecting like kind of personal instances or like occurrences or questions that. Um, are still open and unfinished or unresolved and connecting them to like structural forms of violence or like structural patterns that don't kind of universalize a particular experience but try to find structures, structures and patterns in them that make it possible for people to connect across differences of their, in terms of their positionality, in terms of their precise experiences. But um, um, yeah, kind of like not abstracting the particular, like not losing the particular, but finding yeah, kind of social patterns in them that open up uh, conversations that can happen in solidarity and that help other people think through their own questions mm -hmm. alongside those patterns. And I think that's um, what the work then is, is to kind of lay out structures that are not reductive or that are not kind of universalizing something, but that make it, make like, yeah, particular and personal experiences like connectable across differences. With the uh pandemic and the restrictions of the last year and a half, I, I feel like a lot of us, um, artists or not, have been reflecting on so many of what we discussed today. Thank you so much for being generous for this beautiful, beautiful conversation. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much, Vika. Thank, Thank you so you much, so. Ali.